Good morning. It's a privilege to uh, open up the second part of our values in this series, Thrive. And we've called it Thrive because it's about what the church looks like when it reflects who Jesus is and that church is thriving. But it's not only that, it's about us as individuals because our lives only thrive when we are part of something bigger than ourselves that lasts forever. And so we looked at the first part of these values and the first one is called missional. And we looked at how missional is about reflecting the heart of God first and foremost. You trace missional, this idea of having such love that you travel and invest and become part of a different culture out of love, it is nestled in God's heart first. And we saw that and that God treasures people uh, and misses the people who are not around his table. Uh, then the next week, um, Rob Chifakoyo preached on missional followers, that missional followers become those who apply those principles. And this morning, we're going to look at what it means to be relevant. And you know, um, Rob is such a relevant guy when he preaches. Last week he showed us Kobe, and you may be thinking like, well, why isn't Rob, he's so relevant, why is he dealing with relevance? And I just want to say, not that it's a competitive sport, but um, I, you know, I have my own relevance, and so I ran into <laughs> King James, and um, I'm not shy, I asked him if we'd have a cup of coffee later. Um, so I think uh, King James, you know, definitely beats Kobe. And if you aren't convinced of that, I mean, I hate to bring these things out. I really reluctantly share this with you, but, you know, I can't tell you all the important places I go and the people I'm with, um, but it's just part of being relevant. It's just part of being relevant. And so in being relevant, uh, it involves two things. It involves the delivery system of something valuable, timeless, eternal, unchangeable, uh, but it also involves our zeal to make sure that as many people experience that as possible. Uh, and I'm going to just have a little bit of fun uh, looking at people who have done this in terms of marketing. They have packaged their contents in some really creative ways. Uh, if you're going to sell pasta in New York City, you know, you make it look like a great skyscraper there. Uh, if uh, you're going to sell gum, love this one for Trident. Their packaging is so cool. I don't know how it worked out for this guy when he tried this, uh, but it's a way of making the packaging memorable and desirable. Um, I don't know that this sold this product, but I love this. Cigarettes as coffin nails. You might as well just own up if you're going to buy them. That's what they are. Uh, and, uh, but my, my personal favorite is this Parmesan pencil. I mean, if you have to eat vegetables, cover it with as much Parmesan cheese as possible. Uh, and so uh, that's what this is. I tried to buy some the other night and they're all sold out. You can't get them. Uh, and then perhaps the most innovative is tea bags that look like a goldfish. It looks so much like a goldfish. I don't think that I want to drink that cup of tea. Um, but why do these people do this? Because they have a product, and it has to be a quality enough product that people want, but they want to have the packaging that makes people even anticipate and want that product more. And we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that states those two things. And I want to say to you, um, we need, as individuals and as a church, to care about both of these things if we're going to be relevant. We need to care about tamper-proof content that is so precious that it is true for all times, places, and peoples and cannot be tampered with. It should not be filtered or diluted or changed in any way, sense, or form. But then if we really treasure that and we really believe that, 
then that means in the delivery system for that, which is so precious, we are willing to do anything in our power to make that deliverable to people. I mean, we just looked at pictures of people who were doing it for the sake of the almighty dollar, right? And we are doing this to change destinies, not to make dollars, but to change people's destinies forever. And that's what this passage is about. We're going to read it, and then I want to take it apart and challenge all of us in those two categories, the tamper-proof, unchangeable content, and then the call to adapt in the flexible packaging so as many as people as possible experience it. This is Paul's testimony, and I just want to say Paul was getting in a lot of trouble with the church who didn't like how tr- flexible he was. So he stresses the first part, the unchangeable content, and then he moves into the call to be flexible. So hear the word of God. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Now, just a comment here. Paul's calling to preach the gospel happened simultaneously with his conversion. So for him, it really is very clear that he was saved to serve and be on mission. Verse 17, if I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. And I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in his blessings. Let's just bow a moment and pray. Father, in the world we live in, a world of wars and rumors of wars, a world of natural disasters and people recovering, our hearts are with these places, Puerto Rico, parts of this country, around the world, the earthquake in Mexico. We think also, Lord, of just the division and dissension in our own nation. It is so good for us as we, Lord, pray for your covering and presence in all of those areas of need that we can turn to your good word that does not change and that provides for us a transcendent purpose for our lives. So we pray you'd open up your word and open up our hearts, lay us bare to the challenge behind this, Lord, because we're not all that this word calls us to be, and we want to be that. So make us honest and receptive, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at these two things, the tamper-proof content that is eternal and changeable and the flexible packaging. And I want you to see first that this is what Paul is called to. He stresses the tamper-proof content. And many churches are irrelevant because they have left this behind. Many people do not believe Jesus has any relevance for them because the only Christians they know and the only church they've known is a church that is basically in lockstep conformity with whatever the culture says. I mean, if the world says it and people say that in the world, then that's what the church is saying and that's what they're parroting. And we all know that if somebody just agrees with you all the time, then they're unnecessary. And so a lot of people experience Jesus and... Frankly, we live in a world that that basically sees Jesus as just a um, reflector of culture or a very dispensable 
uh, aspect, and he's not generally regarded as a real-life personality who deals with real-life issues, who has something valuable to impart to us that might contradict and disagree with us and intercept us from the place where we would go. And so because of that, because that's where a lot of churches live, they have caved in, they have cut the cord to anything transcendent in the Word of God, they're irrelevant. I mean, the first step to being relevant is you've got to be tied to something that is transcendentally relevant in God. The only way to always be relevant is to be eternal and to be rooted in God's Word, which God speaks of as settled in the heaven itself. And we do Jesus and the representation of God a horrible disservice whenever we represent it as something that is malleable, flexible, or just a reflection of who we are. I mean, you could be totally irrelevant if you were just a reflection of the culture and a reflection of all of the confusion in the culture. And, and so there's a sense in which I would say this, and I want to say this in humility because it's God who has made this to be true, um, but the most relevant thing about our church and the most distinctive thing about our church at Covenant Um, is that we seek to give you the Bible undiluted, unfiltered, uncompromised, the Bible unadjusted to our culture, and to present it to you, and in a sense, let that land as it lands. We aren't sticking our fingers in the air. We aren't trying to decide what society says. We aren't saying, oh, well, people change in the last hundred years. Let's shift everything. We're saying we will preach this word, and if only 30 people are willing to take that truth and accept it and treasure it, then we'll have 30 people. Uh, And that, in a sense, is the most important aspect of of relevancy. You know, we don't know what the world will be like 30 years from now. Nobody would have thought 30 years ago that we would all be tied into our smartphones as almost an appendage to our bodies and brains. But who knows what the breakthroughs are going to be? But we know that Human nature will be the same as it's always been. It's always been broken through the centuries, and it breaks down in some of the same ways. It results in sin that we can't overcome, sometimes in the form of addictions. It results in our hearts saying, not only do I do bad things, but I am a worthless bad person. The Bible intercepts both of those. Jesus has tremendous good news. We know that people will continue to be lonely. We know that people will continue to have fractured relationships that they will be tempted to bitterness and resentment. We know that there will be a kind of despair and hopelessness. We know that the human soul can't bear the idea that is touted in so many places that there is no ultimate meaning in life and that things just happen in a random way. We can't really function in our life without a transcendent purpose, and that leads to all kinds of depression and despair. I mean, we live in a time where there has never been more freedom in virtually all categories, and there's never been more misery and people who can't get by in this world without somehow medicating themselves. And so we know that the Bible addresses all of those things, and so we we know that that's going to be true 30 years from now. That's going to be true if the Lord tarries uh, 300 years from now and more, because it has always been true. And, and so the way to make sure we're relevant first is to make sure that we are unflinchingly, uncompromisingly, unapologetically um, tied to that. And all of the content actually that is in uh, the scriptures that we deliver, again, it's not our ideas that offend people, but it's actually we can bank on and place the authorship and, if you will, even say the blame for something in the Bible that offends someone back 
to the author himself. We didn't write the message. We're just delivering the message, unpacking the message, putting it up on the screen, telling you to open your Bibles or devices and say, check it out. Is this what Jesus said? Because it's his idea, not our idea. And so when there's something that grates against some of the prevailing culture, like when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, then we say, hey, um, we pay attention to that because the guy who said it actually died a horrendous public death, was put in a tomb, rose from that tomb, appeared to his followers and to more than 500 others at the same time, and they were willing to stake their very lives upon that truth. It's not just a blind leap in the dark. It actually has substance and basis. So we're basing our faith on the fact that this is the resurrected one who defeated death, and because he defeated the grave, we actually care about all the other things he says. But he said it. What do you base your rejection on? And so we can have a real conversation. And again, they may say, hey, I base my rejection on the last 10 tweets on my Twitter feed. Or I read a book that Oprah Winfrey endorsed, and that's where I'm coming from. And we'll say, okay, that's, that, that, we can have a conversation, but I'm, basing, I'm banking my eternity on the one who credibly defeated the grave and came out the other side, okay? Amen. And, and so... In doing that, that, the relevancy of the unchanging truth is actually, it's, it's Jesus' concern. And so we find Paul speak of this in verse 17. He says, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. Some of you know that language of a trust. If you're charged, if you're like the executor of an estate or a trust, um, those assets are not something you get to monkey with. You can't liquidate them and cause them to appear in this form. You can't, you can't empty those accounts. You're, you're simply, pa- it's a pass-through. You are discharging. You are discharging and you are legally obligated to discharge what's in that trust. And so Paul there is saying, look, what I'm delivering to you, it's not something that we, you know, take a referendum on or a public opinion poll to decide what it is. I'm simply being an honest broker of what is unchangeable and what in the Bible has been true and proclaimed as true for all times, peoples, places, cultures, and situations. And the amazing thing about the Bible is that as it has gone forth, as the preaching of the gospel has gone forth around the world, the same content and the same um, proclamation that is made in the top echelons of Ivy League institutions is made in Papua New Guinea or some island culture where they've never had language reduced to writing. And when that same culture, whether it's Ivy League or whether it's Papua New Guinea, um, is reduced to writing, but then it's understood in the heart language of a person, it results in the same experience. This is incredible. That for someone who's in a non-literature culture and they see somebody reading off a sheet of paper and they say, that looks like magic. You're reading someone's mind off a sheet of paper. They can't imagine. But they understand that the Son of God came in pursuit of them in love and bore the curse upon his own body and it was his life for theirs. And whether they experience the same thing as the person in an Ivy League institution who's at the top of their field in philosophy or in some other science like Francis Collins. And what do they experience? They They experience freedom and life and joy and a new creation in their heart. And they, they experience that these things are incontrovertibly, undeniably true and a willingness to stake their life on it. And they have newfound freedom and joy and purpose and a change of their life that ripples through their life in all kinds of beneficial ways. 
And that is the truth of God. And so that's the first aspect of being relevant. And so Paul wants to solidify to these people because I think he got in hot water with this church because they saw him so adaptable, not in terms of the message, but in terms of the delivery system of the message, that they kind of accused him of being a chameleon, of changing his song. And so he had to say, no, 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 that's not what's going on here. I am discharging the trust committed to me. And in fact, he's even willing to do it. He's even willing to lay down his rights. He says, I could charge for this. But he was very careful. Paul had a very complicated relationship, especially with with these new churches. He didn't want them to even have the temptation to reduce him to someone doing this for profit. So he refused to take a paycheck for it because he didn't want that to be introduced into their mind that this was just a a financial interaction. So he says, I'm willing to lay down all of my rights for this, even things that would make my existence more comfortable. So Paul, this great mind, one of the greatest minds that ever lived, he's making tents. He's making tents so that no one can say that he's merely doing this for profit. That's how committed he was to removing obstacles, laying down his rights. But the second part of this is that he expresses his flexibility. And I want you to see how he states it. He says, I'm free and I belong to no one, but I've made myself a slave. This is incredible. Someone who is free, but he says, I'm going to take on limitations. I'm going to lay down my rights and my freedom and my comfort all for communicating this message. And then he lists all those that he does it to. And there's virtually every category. These categories of people still exist in our world today. But he's saying, I want to make this understandable. I like how the message translation puts this into words, where he says, even though I'm free of the demands and expectations of everyone, I voluntarily become a servant to any and all in order to reach a wide range of people. And I particularly love this part to reach a, reach a wide range of people, religious, non-religious, meticulous moralist, loose-living immoralist, the defeated, the demoralized, whoever. I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. This is so Christ-like, folks. He wasn't the first one to do this. But he's basically saying, I cared more about understanding them first than I did about being understood. Imagine a world in, in which we, were, we had a population of people who cared more about understanding the other side more than they cared about being understood. Revolutionary. And he says, I kept my bearings in Christ while doing this. And he says, I've become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those I meet into a God-saved life. I did all this because of the message I didn't just want to talk about it. I wanted to be in on it. What an example for us in in what he did. Now, where did Paul get this? I don't think he even started with Jesus. I think you can go all the way back to just God speaking to us. We're talking about the God who created the galaxies, who has galaxies with thousands of suns bigger than our sun, who spread all of this out. Speaking to us, we have about, you know, three and a half pound brains to work with in order to comprehend who this God is. And so he had to condescend more than a little bit to make himself known to our minds. 
John Calvin in his Institutes, I think, says it better than anybody who's said it. He says, um, and he, he first of all says, if you deny this, <laughs> you're devoid of intellect to not understand that God is speaking um, lisp with us as nurses are wont to do with little children. He's saying God had to speak baby talk, and that's to put it mildly, in order to have himself understood with our three and a half pound brains. In fact, if there's nothing of God that staggers your three and a half pound brain, then I don't think you've really contemplated uh, the magnitude of who that God is. You may have just only conjured up your own thoughts. And so God is talking baby talk to us in the Bible. Now, do not understand this as in any way denigrating what is in the scriptures. This is precious baby talk. But this means Psalm 23. What a majestic and revered chapter. Or um, the Sermon on the Mount. Or 1 Corinthians 13. Or the opening chapters of Genesis, uh, read by astronauts as they look down upon the earth from the moon. Those glorious passages which we treasure, all of this, it, it is it's baby talk. It's God lisping to us. The way we might help to know, make known something profound to a little child. Now, one thing we can all look forward to is in heaven, I think the baby talk is going to be amplified a good bit. <laughs> and we're going we're to probably learn some new terms and concepts and things that at least then in glory, we will be able to comprehend and stagger. It's like there are many things God can't tell us here because our capacities are too blurred. They're too limited. Maybe they're, maybe they're stained by sin so we can't understand it. But God does this in making himself known. And when Jesus stepped into the world, Jesus stepped into the world in first century culture. He had to wear first century dress. He ate first century food, listened to music. He attended synagogue according to the first century form. And in this sense, every culture that receives the message of Christianity, we never get a disenculturated, disembodied form of who God is. He has to speak in the packaging. He has to take his timeless, eternal truth and speak it in the packaging of the culture that we live in. There is no such thing as just saying, well, a neutral culture that doesn't have any conditioning to it. One place I think we experience this is uh, my wife and I are always, when we're involved with a couple in premarital counseling, we always try to help them understand uh, the difference in families of origin. And the couples generally never listen to anything that we say because they're just so much in love and gaga over each other. And it's like, oh, well, we won't have any conflict over this. This won't be anything at all. And we were that same way. We still are that way after 29 years, praise God. But we did learn something about family of origin cultures because I was from the great Midwest and my wife grew up in great Brooklyn, New York from an Italian family. And so like when her family first met me, they're like, where are you from? What are you? And I'm like, I'm American. <laughs> what are you? You know, I'm like, well, you know, we got a little French Huguenot, but then a whole bunch of Italian and whatever. Like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. That's just American. I just like, you know, blotted that out, blended that all in. You know, and then we start to celebrate the holidays. First one's with her family. And it's like, oh, you're having seven fishes for Christmas Eve? What? I mean, that's okay, but that's not, you know, that's not the right thing to serve. That's not the way. I didn't say that. I just thought it, you know as I kind of recoiled into my nostalgia for my own family's way of doing things the right way, which is the Midwest way. And, and so, yeah. And so we come, that myth of cultural neutrality means that we aren't really humble. 
And we don't recognize even the things that are transcendent. And hey, we worked it out. And we actually had counseling that told us to anticipate that. So when it happened, we're like, hey, this is what they told us. And we didn't think it would be an issue, but it, it actually is. We take all those expectations and they, they can distract us from the essence. And here's what's so wonderful. When you start to bridge the gap and recognize that all these different journeys and cultures and, and just people's lives are so different and you focus on the essence, it accentuates how great the essence of God is. Because here's the amazing thing, and this is one of the reasons I believe in Jesus, is in the first century, coming into that culture, adapting his language and parables and speech to that culture, he produced a content that we can transport into any place on the globe, and it is relevant. He has global dexterity. Think about that word, global dexterity. in every. So every image bearer on the planet, every human being, there is a Jesus-shaped hole in their heart that when the content of who Jesus is is revealed, they at least, if they're honest, have to say, I wish that could be true because it so addresses the human need. I heard an atheist who was attending a, another pastor's church recently say he came up to the pastor and, you know, the pastor thought, wow, has there been a change? He goes, no. But he says, I am at the point where the way you describe the world makes a whole lot more sense to me than my atheism. He says, well, are you a believer? He says, no, no, no. I'm not letting go of my atheism yet, but I'm just saying, I'm really seeing that what you're saying, it so speaks to my existence and how the world seems to really be. That should happen when we're unpacking um, the gospel from, from cultural limitations. And so Paul, again, was, was willing to go all these places. I mean, I, I love that um, what he says actually first here is he says in verse 20, to the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. Hey, Paul, <laughs> wake up here. You are a Jew. You're from a Jewish background. You only knew Judaism. But Paul is saying his identity was so liberated by his faith in Jesus Christ that now even that identity is something that he puts off and on as easily as we put a shirt off and on. And, and, so, and he's raised in a moralistic background who understood the importance of eternal moral categories. But he says, I, I have to become like that person in a sense and understand how to target the timeless content of the gospel to someone who understands morality. But he says, I can also go to somebody who says, I don't believe in any absolutes, any moral laws whatsoever. And he says, I don't just say, okay, you don't believe in any absolutes. Are you absolutely sure about that? That's one approach. But he doesn't say, I just do that. He says, I can go to, them, to the person who says, I'm going to find myself by all this freedom. And he says, I, I can talk to them about how if you have disordered loves and you don't have the right priorities and loves in your life, you will, you will not just break the law. You will break yourself on that law. And so you can talk to that person and say, if all you think of in your life is pleasure, that will absolutely sow the seeds of destruction of a pleasurable life. If all you think in your life is freedom and you never commit in a loving bond to someone, you will never experience the joy of freedom within that relationship you're designed for. If you make making money the be-all and end-all of your existence, it will wreck your soul. Uh, and, and so they said, well, my thing is happiness, but you can't find happiness outside of those parameters. So he knows how to speak into all of these categories. And, and he says, I have become all things to all people that I might win them. And so he is willing to operate freely with this. So if you've resonated with this message, let's say if you are a believer in Christ, you say, yeah, that's right. You take the eternal truths of God and you are willing to do absolutely whatever it takes to win people to Christ because that's his verb. I want to win people. I want to win, win, win them 
to what will bless them for all eternity, if that's true, then I'm going to challenge you and say, then what are you doing about it? How is that operating in your life? Because we are called then to do that. And that means that requires a flexibility that is born out of some humility to say, hey, God, I don't want anything that I'm holding on to that is unnecessary, one of my preferences or goals that, that gets in the way of someone else really being blown away by the fullness of who you are. And you say, so I'll do whatever. And it means that we, we aren't tied to any particular um, century or cultural expression that can be changed if there's a more um, applicable way to make the gospel known. And so this is, I mean, there's all kinds of simple things that I think you're seated here, seated here, so you agree with, but like we don't lock in the language of God in Elizabethan English and speak in all of these and vowels, which often make people think that, oh no, church is as inaccessible as my Shakespeare class. I got a D in that. I don't know that I can get anything out of this. We, we don't lock in um, the music, and the music is always changing in terms of their, people's language, but I hear over and over again people say, hey, I entered the church. I was kind of surprised. I actually enjoyed the whole feel and approach and instrumentation of the music, it made sense to me. And again, these things are often hard for churches to do. I mean, I'm sure it's very possible if I live to be 90, and I'm all for that. My mom is rocking 86. If I live to be 90, I'm going to have my own musical preferences that are probably way far out of step with what's going on in church. And I'll be sitting in the back row, and I'll come up to the worship leader, whoever it is, and say, do you, have you ever heard of Hillsong? Could we do a Hillsong just one, one time? You know, we get locked in those things. I mean, I'm just now catching up with the fact that it's okay to wear your shirt tucked out. I mean, I thought that was wrong. And I waited so long that my kids are telling me, Dad, now it doesn't matter. You can do either one. You've waited so long, it's no longer cool. You're catching up. You're behind the times. But there's the, the reality is that we have to have that flexibility in order to be Christ-like. And that kind of exercise is so good for us. It's so good for our soul because it magnifies what we care ultimately about. And I want to just look at this last verse. Paul says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. He says, if I omit this concern of love for others, I like what the commentator Lenski says, if I omit this concern of love for others and being flexible, although through my work, devoid of such love, many others may be saved, yet I myself would not be saved. How can he say that? What he's saying is, you know, if I just do what a lot of people do, and a lot of churches do this, they say, hey, we're going to build high walls around the church. Uh, we're going to make them really tall. Uh, we're going to put a loudspeaker system out to our community, and we're going to tell our community, hey, if anybody's willing to scale those walls, have at it. Be our guest, and then you can come in and sort things out. You know, sometimes the truth is so powerful that people come to faith in God with that. And he says, if I did that, and I said, I'm just going to stick to my preferences, my script, make no adaptations, not really care how people are processing this. He says, I myself would not be saved. How could he say that? I thought salvation was by grace. And I love this. Here's why he can say that. And this is from John Piper. I love this comment. He says, in other words, Paul knew that his faith in Christ would be utterly inauthentic and false. If he abandoned the pattern of life set by Jesus and no longer cared for other people, he would be denying the one who descended from heaven all the way to the lowest point by his refusal to descend to where people are in communicating the message. And that's exactly what he says. He says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel, but he says also that I may share in its blessings. Because he says, if I don't start looking like the Jesus I'm proclaiming, then it starts, to, it starts to mean that maybe my faith is bogus 
and I haven't really partaken of that. And, and so the gospel is so precious, it's, we've got to use every delivery system we can to get this out. I want to give you this illustration. Some of you know what this is. Daminix tubes to get rid of Lyme disease. Lyme disease, we know, is transported by these little deer ticks. They're about as big as a freckle. They, they're on deer, but the way they're really transported in Bucks County, and we have the distinction of being almost the number one place in the world this stuff happens, is they're on these little cute little field mice. And the field mice become the host of this, and then they run through our yards, and then when you're in your lawn chair in your yard, the tick jumps up, hops on you. If it's there for 24 hours, boom, you got Lyme disease. So what are we going to do about that? Well, there is a solution. Daminix basically takes permethrin. Or it's a very mild form of insecticide. It's deadly to ticks. And when applied to them, it kills them. So if we could get the mice all treated with this stuff, we could rid a lot of the deer ticks. But the problem is the mice are not very cooperative. You know, there are sheep and cattle dipping tanks that you can, you know, herd all the sheep through and you can make them walk through and they dip through it and you get rid of the ticks. But we don't have any means of getting all the mice to line up and say, hey, we're not going to be mean to you. We just want you to run through and get rid of the rid of the ticks. So someone ingeniously came up with a delivery system because they have a passion to eliminate this horrible disease. It's very, it's very dangerous disease. And so with their passion, they said, mice love cotton balls. I mean, I learned this because I stored a, a cushion in my shed. And when I went to look at it in the spring, the stuffings were everywhere. And I've been discovering it in wood piles and under the deck and all these places where field mice nest in this stuff. And so they said, we're going to treat these cotton balls with this potent permethrin. And then the mice are going to raid it and take it thinking they've done something naughty, but they've actually done what we've wanted them to do. And they're going to nest in there. And as they luxuriate on this soft bed we've made for them, the ticks are going to reach their demise and we can wipe out a lot of Lyme disease. And I think of this and I think they did this because they had a passion for temporal health and to eradicate a bad disease. They created this great delivery system. This is what God wants us to get in on the joy of doing with the gospel. It's, this is what God wants us to get in on and to have the, the excitement and enjoyment of doing this. And so I want to ask you, is that, what steps do you need to take? I mean, you all, we could, if you're a believer in Christ, you could write down a list of the people who are, are far from God. You've got to do both of these. I mean, sometimes the reason we're not relevant is we never get to the eternal, timeless content. We spend all the time building the bridges and the communication, but you've got to get there. But also, where would God call you to flex? And I'll tell you what, what makes this dynamic in your life and mine, it's not our capacity for cleverness. It really, it's, it's our capacity for love. Humility and love is what makes people so relevant, irresistibly relevant. And when you have those two things operating in your heart, you will, you will think of the gospel and of Jesus, and you will find ways to communicate even through acts of service and love. I mean, one of the most relevant things that's happening in terms of packaging right now is there are Christians running around all over Houston and South Florida and hopefully in Puerto Rico, and they are just bountifully dispensing mercy in the name of Jesus. That is so relevant and so positive in our world. But I'll tell you something I see, and I've seen it in many of you, and I've experienced it myself. If, we have a, if you finally succeed in your most beloved but non-Christian person who you talk to, care for, pray about, and all of a sudden they show up, or maybe they even tell you, I'm going to come to your church. 
and they're seated right next to you. Some of you have experienced that. And you know what happens to you when that happens. You cannot listen to anything, the music, the announcements, the preaching, without filtering it through the ears and heart of that person who is seated there. You're like, oh, I'm so glad that they used an illustration about that movie because they just watched that movie. Or I'm so glad they spoke about this because I know that, that that's clear. Oh, I'm, I'm glad this was brought down to life. And I know this is true. I've watched you, but I've also sometimes seen it myself. On Christmas Eve, when this place is packed with people, you know, twice as many as usually come here, lots of people we know who don't have a relationship with Jesus, who haven't come to that place. And I'll see a neighbor who I've talked with, and I know they've said something like, hey, that born-again stuff I think is ridiculous. And they're seated, like, in the middle over here. And I know there's, there's going to be at least 2,400 other people hear that message and as I'm preaching it, I can't help but, but filter everything I'm saying, desperately trying to use all the tools that God will give me, praying, God help me so that it's understandable, clear, and compelling to them. And you know what? That makes me a better preacher. It makes me better at embodying who Jesus is, but it's kind of silly. It's just one person. It's always true. It's always true, but that's how God works. And that's why it's love. And here's, here's where that love comes from. Not just a God who would speak in baby talk to us. Not just a Jesus who would come into a first century culture in all of its cruelty. I mean, if I would choose a culture, at least give me an ice machine and air conditioning and comforts. But he came into all that. But it's not just that, but he went in a horrific distance for us. Born out of a capacity for love that is absolutely infinite and divine, going all the way to the cross to adapt and flex in all of the packaging, making it utterly brought all the way down to the ground for us because that ground is accessible where a criminal is executed. Anyone can come to that horrific place to come to receive salvation. It's that love. And when that is born in us, that's what makes a relevant church. Holding to what is timeless and tamper-proof that must be guarded, but doing whatever it takes to get that truth unpacked. That's what it means to thrive in making the gospel known. I want to pray for us, uh, and then Bill's going to close us out with a great song of commitment. Let's pray. Father, we pray first of all, we know there are some here who've not yet taken that step of responding to the content of the truth. They may not even have yet fully understood what that truth is, and it's very simple. Christ died for sinners just like us. Bring that truth home and enable them to respond, even today, before they leave this room. Assemble whatever is needed for that person to process your truth and know it. And Lord, we're so thankful today. It doesn't depend on our cleverness. It's not even primarily about that at all. But your word is so powerful and your spirit is so prevailing that we know that you are doing this work and we are so privileged to be part of it. And so we pray for us, Lord, that you bring to our mind specific people and help us, Lord, in being used to show them that you want to have a conversation with them. Maybe they have shut down a long time ago thinking that you had anything to say to them in their life. They may be in middle school or high school. They may be advanced in years. But whatever it is, they think that there's nothing of importance to go on. And Lord, 
Open up that conversation with them and help us to be the means of showing that Jesus is the one who who makes our life full of a joy that makes it worthwhile, who removes all the mistakes we would make that will just lead to all kinds of pain and regret. Lord, just move so that Christ would be made known. And Lord, now just as we sing this song and then we're going to head out of here, uh, help us to be that church that does whatever it takes to live this out. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.